Hey guys, this is Juma again, and you are listening to The Silent Doc. Follow me on Instagram and Facebook at The Silent Doc. So, this will be a first on the podcast. We are actually doing an interview. It will likely be released as a two-part series. The news cycle changes so quickly that I just wanted to do a review of like everything that's going on. Um, and how better to touch on all the different aspects of COVID than to use the economy to do so. So you're probably thinking, the economy, dry, boring, like, are you serious right now? But let's just hold on. The economy is actually super important right now. It totally undergirds COVID as we know it. Like, how did it get this bad? Why don't we have enough testing? Who is getting affected the most throughout all of this? Like when we think about the reopen protests, why did they even occur in the first place? Because people were stuck at home, they lost their jobs, and they were mad about it. Even the Black Lives Matter movement. It was birthed out of a certain, not just police brutality, but an even more brutal economic system which had long been on the necks of black and brown folk. So the economy is the foundation of so many things. And capitalism and how it functions is actually really important. So that's the story I hope to try and uncover today. It's the economic story of COVID. See? Still storytelling. Alright, let's get started. So we will be spending our time with Birju Rao. Aside from being a close friend, he has a dual training in economics and medicine. He has a degree from economics from Northwestern University and graduated from medical school at the University of Illinois in Chicago. Thankfully, he'll be staying at Emory and pursuing a fellowship in cardiology with his research being in behavioral economics and shared decision making. He calls himself an amateur economist, but by the end, you'll see he's actually a pro. And with that, let's begin. Okay, guys. Uh, hey, this is Chuma, and you are listening to The Silent Doc. So today I'm not really your storyteller, but more your host. And as I stated before, we have an amazing guest with us. Uh, his name is Birju Rao. And since I've already really given him one of the world's greatest introductions, um, I'm going to let him give you sort of a one-liner about himself. Birju, can you just uh, tell us just give us a one-liner. <clears throat> yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Chuma. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, just briefly, I'm a, a cardiology fellow um, and uh, a background in economics. I studied economics at Northwestern. I went to medical school in Chicago, and I'm coming down here, finishing up my residency and um, starting my fellowship. My research interest is uh, specifically decision-making and game theory. Oh, snap. That almost doesn't even sound medical. You're like, game theory? <laughs> Um, okay, so that's, that's pretty awesome. Um, so I guess 
quick question. How have you been staying sane in the in the era of COVID? Okay, because like I feel like you know, my fiance's been cooped up in the house and I, I literally think that she's um something's happening. She's changing. <laughs> That's right. No, you know, I, I think um I'm actually doing pretty well. You know, it's uh, it, it's uh, you know, luckily I I have a job. I work. My wife has a job. She works. Um, we both have family who live close by. Um, you know, because of this, I've been actually able to see my wife more and spend more time with her. So I've I've been saying reasonably sane, actually. Yeah, um, faring better better than than most other people. So it, it hasn't been too bad. I mean, obviously, I miss the social interaction and the connection and stuff. But uh, I think. Uh, uh, to, uh, I don't think I'm going to play the story of woe is me. I think there's a lot of bigger people with bigger issues than me. Yeah, that is fair. Um, I'm glad that spending time with your wife has been a good thing. You know, some people out there, I mean, I love my fiance. Yeah, that's why I'm going to get married to her. But yeah. some people out there are getting a little sick of uh, the people they that's uh, right. quote unquote love. Uh, so, oh yeah. Oh, I wanted to, so in true like curbsiders fashion, you know, I know, I'm going to say the same thing they say. If you skip through all the beginning parts, you're a worse person, okay? Um, but do you have any, like, recommendations, like books, shows, movies that people should get into? Yeah, I mean, I actually just um, finished uh, a book. It's not medical per se, but uh, it's a book called Factfulness by Hans Rosling. I really recommend it. it it's um, it, it was on sort of Bill Gates' top books to read. He was uh, Hans Rosling was a professor of Global Health at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, um, and he recently passed away. But he was um, famous from uh, TED Talks. He'd done a, several TED Talks and really a dynamic speaker about global inequality and global change and trying to get the whole world more health healthcare literate and statistic literate. Um, yeah. So it's really a fantastic read. I, I really recommend it. Wow. Uh, I, you know, I was going to try and top that, but uh, <laughs> I'm just going to go for the casual. Uh, so we have been going through the, um, the Harry Potter <laughs> movies. <laughs> yeah. You can't go wrong. Um, you cannot go wrong. So it's funny. We just, uh, we finished book. No, sorry. We watched the fourth movie mm. and um, it's when, I mean, you guys should have already seen it. at this point. Spoiler alert: Cedric Diggory, or like Cedric, whatever he, he dies, <laughs> or whatever. And, and Robert she Patterson. was. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. She was devastated. Was devastated. Like, devastated. like literally. She hasn't seen it like, before? No, she hasn't seen the movies. Are you kidding me? I know. I know. It, she hasn't <laughs> read the books either. She hasn't read the books. What? <laughs> yeah, it's a little. It's it's sad. Um, How? I'm trying. I'm trying to catch her up. It's it's a lot of work. All right, there's a heavy burden on me. How is how is she not (laughs) read this before? (laughs) I I mean I honestly don't I don't know what to tell you. I it was one of those things. Read when people were read. It's like oh she loves like those history those like uh, what is it those England history books like learning about Henry the Eighth and like all his like wives and. How this no, one, I mean, but like fiction, like when you were in elementary school, like what did you read, or like junior high, you know, like Dude, she's a lawyer, like she doesn't. That's right. That's Just right. bizarre, very bizarre. strange. Um, so it's been uh, it's been fulfilling, but also 
it's been a little dramatic at times. Yeah. Okay. They're those uh, books are so timeless too. You know. They really are. They kind yeah. of grow up with you. That's kind of what was sort of unique about them. But I, you, you sort of get the. I mean, I don't want to stay here too long, but you know, you sort of get <laughs> you sort of get the feeling like every single movie, you know, like because it progresses like two or three years or whatever, like yeah. they, get, they get so old so fast. So old. Well, it, you know, it was, I think I read somewhere, I think Daniel Radcliffe was like an alcoholic for like half of those movies. It's like, he had like a big, I think, problem with like alcoholism. He was like drunk for most of those movies. And then he like, now he's like completely sober. He's like did AA and all that stuff. It's uh, incredible, but it kind of like ruined my childhood memory of Harry Potter being completely drunk on set. Oh my God. Okay, okay. I promise this is not the Harry Potter podcast. This is a silent back. Uh, we tell stories about COVID, uh, you know, healthcare field, the unrest, and more. So we're getting down to business. Okay, so COVID hits. Okay, the stock market essentially crashes. Uh, what two million people? I think we passed the two million infected mark already. We're close to one hundred and twenty thousand people who have died from the virus. And I think I saw numbers around like what greater than forty million people are unemployed. Um, so some of the questions I've been getting are like, why or how did it get this bad? Like, where was like was the United States just unprepared or like what? How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's actually pretty good data on it that we were just completely unprepared. You know, it, it, it it's. From when we heard first heard about the virus in in China um, to when the first case happened in the U.S., it, it was um, we had sort of a lag time of uh, about a month or two, and during that time when we should have been ramping up our um, productive capacity to do testing, to develop a sort of um, schema of how to do social distancing and all that stuff we kind of didn't you know and i think tony fauci is famously um famous for sort of saying um in in early february that the virus did not pose a big threat to uh, the u.s so i i think yeah the you know it's easy to blame the trump administration and all that stuff but i don't think anyone sort of um had a full understanding of how how the magnitude of how bad this would be and how um, how pervasive it would affect uh, affect the country. Right, right. You know, it's almost like uh, there was this interesting story out of like uh, I think there was a lab in Seattle where um, they were like doing research on like the coronavirus and they had like gotten the gene sequence um, and they wanted to create testing kits, uh, but because of like, old regulations and laws they were essentially prevented from making their own testing kits and that was just time at the beginning of the the coronavirus sort of spread and i mean not to not to downplay this but i think what we're seeing right now is truly unprecedented i mean when you think about the the global pandemic there's sort of three separate layers when when we think about it. it it's sort of the global pandemic portion the virus infectious health crisis portion in which case we've kind of never seen a global pandemic like this really um in in at least the past several hundred years you know when we think about mers or sars they were sort of very regional viruses uh nothing Mm. to to this scale um and you know when we think about that the 
the effect of the health effects of the virus, it sort of exacerbates or magnifies the underlying inequalities have been that have been going around through several different countries and throughout the world, you know. Uh, and then, you know, finally, this final layer is the the piece, the economic piece of how how we recover, what this does, and um, sort of how the civil unrest that's been going around feeds into that. Because I, I don't think the, these are all happening in vacuum. There is a relationship between them, especially with within this country and the 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 protests about pro- police brutality when there, when you have forty million people sitting at home and watching a video uh, the, of, of George Floyd that you know circulated around the web. You know, it it, it produces a different level of, uh, of emotion and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think there's there's several layers to this that that, that kind of have played interplayed between them, you know. Okay, uh, he, he, this guy basically he just wrote the podcast here. Um, so we're gonna basically get into some of these layers here. Yeah. Uh, I guess you touched on one part, which is like I guess the magnification of inequalities yeah. that like sort of parses out to different groups. I, and I don't want to, you know. There's a lot going on with the Black Lives Matter protests, yeah. and there's been yeah. a, a huge focus on like, you know, Black lives or inequality for Black people. But there's also, I think, all marginalized communities, whether it's yeah. like Black, Latinx, Indian American, yep. poor folks. They're all sort of hit. Are yeah. there? I guess. Are there any specific, you know, marginalized people that that you've sort of notice or that you're most worried about through all this? I don't know. Well, you know, I, I think when we look at it from a global perspective, I think overall, America is going to be fine. I mean, we're one of the richest countries in the world. We, uh, from an economic perspective, we have the ability to spend trillions of dollars to shore up the economy to, a, uh, you know, the Fed buying millions and trillions of bonds assets to shore up the economy and you know the civil unrest in the u.s is one thing but i think it 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 would be a travesty not to talk about what some of the developing countries first world second world countries how they're dealing with it because places like india places like turkey places like brazil they're not going to be able to spend the kind of money that our government can spend by just printing money and shoring up their economy you know there are billions of people uh in the world who you know live on a dollar a day who are you know migrant workers which means you know they they earn whatever income they earn they spend it that day on food and water and with the great paralysis that has come of the global economy with covid uh, those people have sort of been you know left out to dry and there's no sort of economic relief program there's no social relief program for them and for the most of those people they will certainly face death right there's essentially no social safety net we're talking about like we got twelve hundred dollars a stimulus check that I don't even know if everyone's necessarily even gotten that stimulus check yet, but yeah, we got that and we were like, that's not enough. Yeah, what do you say to the person who, after every single day, those are my spendings? That's- yeah, 
I think, and that's that's the other thing. You know, people like sort of scratch their heads at the stock market and say, you know, why is the stock market so high and your numbers are so, so low? I think, in effect, what this has done is shown that. You can't go to war with the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank. The U.S. Hmm. Federal Reserve Bank is incredibly powerful. And for all intents and purposes, they have guaranteed big businesses in the market that we will not let you fail. We'll buy stocks. We'll buy bonds. We'll buy assets. We'll buy whatever. And we will print as much money as is needed to keep the market afloat. Now, that does sort of two things. It, it sort of perverts capitalism in a certain way, right? Because it, in, a, in a sense, it, it's put a floor on the economy. We're not going to let the economy go lower than this. And when you're a big business and you hear that, you're like, great. You know, if there's, we're we're at Vegas and playing, uh, we're playing a game where heads, we win. Tails, the Fed loses. Just kidding. The Fed can't lose. We win. So, you know, it's a win-win game that they're playing. So, and, but the Fed, how long can they keep this up? Like you said, you know, that, that stimulus that they put together was lasted people, what, like a week, two weeks. How long can they keep doing this? Um, because when we're looking at, like, for example, China is probably a month ahead of us, right? Right. So when we look at the Chinese economy, their factories are probably around 90% of where they were pre-crisis. But their spending, their spending in the public sector, retail spending, is less than 50%. And the basic, the basic principle of capitalism is my spending is your income, right? So if people aren't spending money, then how how are we going to generate how are we you know the the fed has still has a certain limit right i mean we're this is the us and we have biggest one of the biggest economies in the world and the fed can do this because um, you know people aren't going to bet against the us economy but there has to be a certain a certain limit i don't know what that limit is i don't think the fed does either but it, it is not uh, their their power is not unexhaustive you know so I guess I'm curious because uh, I think there are a lot of people who are listening who, uh, like myself, I'm not going to exclude myself, is that like, I'm not going to profess to know a great deal about the economy. Sure. And I think there's a lot that's been talked about, with, you know, the Fed's jumping in to save big companies. Yeah. You know, I'm the small guy. I'm getting pinched. When you yeah. say that, I guess the Fed is shoring up big companies, how yeah. exactly are they doing that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So just stepping back, the, the Federal Reserve is a sort of quasi-public, private sort of, it's pretty much essentially a public bank. Um, you know, it's sort of operates within the bounds of the government. And whenever you have an economic downturn, a recession or depression, uh, there are the government, you, you kind of have two sort of levers that you can pull. You have the U.S tax money that you can use that where you can either reduce taxes or give people benefits. And that's what the government did with that $1,200 check that you got in the mail. Uh, and then the other lever that you have is the Federal Reserve where they can- Sometimes, and sorry, I, I hate to cut you off like that, sure. but my check, it took a while to yeah, get that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, I was sick about it because, sorry, I'm going to do a little aside here. This is yeah. about storytelling. I was like the last person uh, when I was on uh, my <laughs> like everybody was checking their bank accounts. They're like, 
what? I got tagged? <laughs> I was literally celebrating, and I checked my Capital One, and I was like, really? Capital One, you're dirty for that. Right, right. That's you, right. Um, sorry. <laughs> Let me back to you now. Well, uh, no, and even, yeah, I think to, to sort of piggyback on that side note, you know, I don't know if you saw this in the news, but they, I think somewhere like four or five million dead people got a check too so uh, like the the whole rollout of this was a whole disaster right because they used taxes from 2018 so people who died after 2018 they got a twelve hundred dollar stimulus and there was like a story in npr where like someone uh, someone's son saw this check deposited in his dad deceased dad's account and he's like hey like i want to give this back there are other people who are alive and may need it more and the government's like oh we can't take this back it's it's yours we can't figure out what to do don't give it back to us so i mean it was a it was a complete disaster it was a complete disaster right is that like college students and disabled people didn't have access to $1,200. It's like, yeah. if I am a college student, yeah. okay, and my university is now close, let's say I, I worked at like, their student center or like, in the cafeteria or someplace, right. and now my, my university is now closed down. Yeah. Like, who, they're pinched just as much as anybody else in this place. Oh, totally. I mean, I, I think it could have been done in a more sort of um, thoughtful manner, because to be fair, I mean, it was nice to get that $1,200 check, but Honestly, I I didn't need it. People like you didn't need it. Like yeah. you know, yeah, we don't make very much, but we make enough to live. You know, yeah. that's not a not a quite. It's not. I don't. Yeah, I, we have a job. You know, it's never a question where I come home. Is there going to be food? Do I have enough money to put food on the table? You know, um, but like you know, that was just sort of an execution standpoint. But just generally, you know, you can. The government has two options when you go into a recession or a depression. You can you can work on get uh, tax relief. Or you can do what the Fed does is print more money. Now, I was always confused about this as a student. You know, what does what does it mean when some when the Fed prints money? Where does the money go? So generally, where the money goes is and this is before before the last economic crisis, the financial uh, the banking crisis. Um, before what the fed did was they would take that printed money and they would buy government debt from that so essentially they would loan the government more money at a very very low interest rate but now what's what the fed is doing which is unprecedented and it was unprecedented the first time they did it um in the crash of 08 is you know when they bought out aig they bought companies actual companies and uh, they went beyond just buying government issued treasury bonds and now the 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 fed has said their power is limitless they can even buy stock they will buy what? they will buy companies they will buy stock they will use that printed money and do whatever they need to to keep the market That's rallied right. up uh, and I think that sort of explains why people are like, "Wow, that it's never been done before." No one, the Fed has never. The Fed has usually just been very close within the government and kind of bought government deeds, government assets, and by doing that, by doing buying government debt and printing more money and getting it into circulation, they can affect the interest rates. The reason the Fed went outside of that purview this time is because interest rates, and what I mean interest rates, I don't mean yeah, the interest rates, fair. I mean you pay, the interest rates that the banks pay. So when a bank lends you money, they borrow that money from the Fed. 
the Fed oh, has a yeah. like a, a sort of universal loan rate. Uh, yeah. This is how much money that if any bank needs to borrow from the Federal Reserve, there's this big pot of cash. This is the interest that you have to pay. And then, you know, the banks charge us a surplus over that because they need to make some money too. <laughs> the, so, the interest of the The interest of the interest. <laughs> right. So the, oh, the, since the last economic downturn, the interest rates have been record low. You know, yeah. they've been less than 1%. So there's yeah. not, and then there was talk that, you know, can you have negative interest rates? <laughs> you know, like how much lower can you go when you get below one, you know, close to zero? Yeah. Uh, you can't do very much. So the Fed in that sense was sort of paralyzed. Their one lever that they can do, print money, print money, it couldn't do anything. So they're like, the only other way we can sort of shore up the economy is buy stock or buy bonds or buy parts of actual companies trading on the Nasdaq, real real people's companies. Um, the first time they did that was during the, the banking crisis in 08 when they bailed out AIG and the quote-unquote bailouts. That That's what those were. Right. Um <laughs> okay, that was a, that was, that was a, a lot, lot of information. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot. As in like I don't know if people understand like the reverberations of that. Um, uh, that's pretty profound. Yeah, no, I mean it, it's it, it begs the question that after this, I mean it's sort of a a meta question, but are or do we ever even have to have another recession again? Right. Ooh. If the Fed can just buy, like in the stock market tanks, so if they could just buy stock and. Just create like a floor and say, you know, the stock market doesn't go below this this level. Do we need to have a recession again? I don't know. You know, I don't know the answer to that. These are again, these are sort of philosophical questions. The Fed has never right. done something like this before. They usually operated under a very narrow window. So, um, you know, and to be fair, I think it, it, given the nature of this crisis, it was the right thing to do mm -hmm. because I, I think. People sort of describe it as a recession. You know, now the numbers have come out. They say it's probably going to be a we're in a recession, which is two two consecutive quarters of economic downturn. Okay. Um, or or people have sort of said it's like numbers like this are you know what we've done in the Great Depression. Uh, to call it a recession or a depression, I think is is sort of erroneous. It's more of a, like I mentioned, it's like an economic paralysis. Right. You know, if you've seen in previous other you know recessions or depressions, something happens to either supply or demand that causes the market to collapse. But in this sense, it had nothing to do with the market, right? The, the, right. Gover the government, and rightfully so, has shut down all businesses because of this sort of global pandemic. So, you know, it, it, it's sort of like, you know, in the ICU when we put patients on, you know, heavy sedation when they're critically ill, we put them down so that we can deal with, you know, treating their critical illness and then, slowly when we wake them up then we see is there anything left up there you know uh, what's what's left and what's the aftermath and i think slowly that's what we're going to see so it was the right thing to do in this acute setting to to intervene very aggressively mm -hmm. and, and i think in in that sense that's what i said earlier i think the us is going to farm 
much better. The U.S., China, Germany, economically are going to fare much better than most of the, these other countries because we have the capacity to print so much money. But what's, what's really going to determine how things are going to progress is what happens when we lift the sedation, when we lift the paralysis and find out what's, what's been brewing underneath. Right, yeah. So, I mean, I guess, I mean, one, it seems, you know, I, I, you're painting a pretty grim picture, okay, uh, Dr. Fauci. Um, <laughs> it seems like there are some companies that are still doing well, right? You still have the Amazons and, like, the Facebooks of the world who are, I mean, what, Jeff Bezos is said to be, like, the first <laughs> trillionaire. Yeah. Um, how, how are companies, not just, like, I guess the big ones, but how are companies that are doing well actually succeeding? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a great question. I think what COVID has done is it's sort of magnified the differences in the economy and the sort of trajectory that we were going already. You know, Hmm. you can see clearly that people whose businesses were digital are clearly doing much, much better in this COVID era than, you know, brick and mortar stores, for example, the mom pop grocery store. You know, they're not right. they're they're they, they may not survive this crisis, but places like Amazon, places like Google um, will their their business is booming right now. And in some ways that that also sort of reflects the inequalities within our um the economy at an individual level, right? Like uh, Fareed Zakaria talks about this, you know, he describes people as either knowledge workers or not knowledge workers. Knowledge workers are people who don't use their hands to work, people right. who can work remotely. These are people like bankers, like consultants, like, you know, look, they, they don't need, in this economy, they're all working, they're all using Zoom and they can all work from home um, safely, right? But uh, when we think about steel mill workers, when we think about janitors, um, these are people who work with their hands mostly and uh, who are hit sort of um, disproportionately hard because of COVID. And uh, these are sort of jobs that even before COVID, we were seeing that there was a financial stress on them. The market was pressing them in one direction because of you know a variety of things, globalization, automation. You know, people talk about this. It's sort of interesting where I, I read the other day that the single largest pers- job or the single the single um, most occupied job for a man in the US yeah is a truck driver so <laughs> the, the the most common job for a male in the US a single job is right. a truck driver so and you know on the other side, we hear, you know, how Tesla is creating Tesla and Uber is creating this automated fleet of trucks and self-driving cars, which is great. You know, uh, you know, the 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 machine is never going to get tired. The machine is never going to drive under the influence. The machine yeah. is never going to make a wrong turn. You know, the machine is never, uh, you know, it's never going to be operating in unsafe conditions. Yeah, you know, but that's one thing. This sort of automation. Um, modernization of, of the economy something that we can't i mean can we stop that i mean we right that's just sort of where naturally our economy is going right. 
Well, and like it's the moral question is should we right like right. There, there are a lot of benefits to automated driving right if we had like if you didn't have to drive to work and had an automated car doing it it'd be so much like the road like think about like trauma the, the motor vehicle accidents would drop significant you know you, you wouldn't need as many trauma surgeons you know yeah, yeah hey hey we can't let these trauma surgeons <laughs> be out of a job man they're right. doing they're doing a great hack job um, they, and, <laughs> sorry, no, no, no offense to no. my fellow trauma surgeons. I think awesome. Working on the fly is incredibly difficult. <laughs> right. No, okay, no but like, I think the point is that, you know, for, for globalization, which is what we've seen over the past 20 years, where, you know, now we have goods that are, you know, available super, super cheap because they're made in China, uh, they're made in India, they're put together in 20, 30 different countries. Right. Um, and that's good for the consumer, right? Because now I can I can get a flat screen TV for 200 bucks. That's great. You know, before TVs were super expensive and allows broader base of people to buy these certain things but there's a side effect right like just like we talked about the automated cars the uh, the most common single job for an Amer um, american man in the u.s is uh, truck a truck driver i what's honestly gonna, don't believe that <laughs> yeah isn't that crazy? but what's gonna happen to these people like i have patients like this where right. you know they're they're truck drivers and you know and what i really worry about is i have a patient like this where you know he's in his 40s you know, he's really screwed, right? Like, I don't, like, if you think about, like, people who are in their upper 50s, it's like, okay, we can probably, like, scrap them along, like, until retirement, and then they'll have, like, pension or whatever. They'll, they'll, they'll get Social Security or they got Medicare. But right. uh, people who are in their, they're screwed, right? This is around the corner. This automation, that sort of thing is going to happen within the next 10, 15, 20 years, you know? Um, what's going to happen to all of these people? Yeah. Uh, and I think that as a whole, America really needs to think hard about what, how they're going to deal with this. And I think this sort of feeds into the civil unrest and the sort of, at least a portion of it is right. the economic inequality. And, I, you know, I think now it's, it's, we have pretty good data on this, that these were the people who voted for Trump, you know, yeah. by and far, you know, aside from the number one factor that determined who, how people voted in this past election was party affiliation. Aside from party affiliation, the number one factor that decided whether people voted for Trump or for Hillary was whether they had a college education. Wow. You know, yeah. uh, and, and I think there's a lot of these people, you know, and I'm just sort of creating a caricature, like people like truck drivers and stuff who feel like they, they, they're, yeah, they're, they're left behind. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, specifically, I think it, it applies to poor white males. And, and you know, in, in American democracy, the sort of, uh, the sort of dirty truth was that the the democrats were always able to win some of these poor white votes because they were able to say hey you're doing at least you're doing better than black people yeah you know but when these people saw a black family in the white house they're like oh shit they were sick about it they were sick about it and they realized hey this is not fair you know these immigrants are coming they're taking our jobs you know no one's fighting for us right. um, and uh, I think that that's the sort of civil anger that we've seen that's been fueling the rise of Trump and it sort of fuels the rise of you know dilapidated communities you know some of these places like uh, Scranton um, uh, or these like sort of steel towns in Pennsylvania you know when the steel mill goes away what happened it, when, right. it, when the big 
when the big employer goes goes out of town what do what do people do for work right and i mean and that that fuels a whole downward spiral of disaster those were good jobs those are yeah. those are jobs that like made decent money had good yeah. benefits and those are people who were like were used to having a, a pretty fairly good standard of living yeah, and they were a lot of them were union jobs, a lot of them were pensioned jobs. Right. So I think, and because of COVID, I think we'll probably end up seeing a return, at least to some extent, of some factory jobs for a geosecurity standpoint. Okay. Um, as as we saw, you know, it was kind of it probably behooves us to have at least some critical manufacturing jobs remain in the U.S. just for a geostrategic standpoint, not have all of our PPE produced in China. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. it's, it's like the same reason. Yeah, it's the same reason why the U.S. subsidizes farm workers here in the U.S. You know, it right. could probably be made cheaper elsewhere, but if all hell breaks loose on the planet, it's good to have your <laughs> own food in your own house, you know, not made somewhere else and, you know, particularly not made in china um because right. you know as much as uh, you know sort of trump paints the anxiety against china i think it, the the next sort of 20 years the sort of geostrategic geopolitical battle will be between the u.s and china these are the two big world powers now yeah um now so like now that you're saying that i don't want people to feed into this um this hype about uh this thing wasn't created in the lab and people released it can we i'm just gonna yeah, squat no, yeah right I, I mean that's now. that's I, I think it's there's pretty good clear evidence that that was false yeah um and that was fear monger and, and, and it's sort of interesting there there's this uh, paul krugman who's an economist oh. has a, a book uh where he talks about zombie ideas right yes a, yes. a zombie a zombie yes. idea is an idea that should be dead just doesn't die, <laughs> die right. you know for some odd reason it just right. doesn't in economics we have a zo- the zombie idea is trickle down economics where you know you give tax cuts to wealthy and it trickles it's been with we have good scientific papers that prove this wrong but still time and time again people like oh tax cuts for the wealthy it'll trickle down (laughs) it's just wrong but for some odd reason it just keeps coming back it's the same sort of thing with with this sort of you know produced in a in a chinese lab just it it just doesn't make any sense it's not rational so not to totally backtrack because i, I want to and please i want to do two things so one it's sort of interesting um because you talked about trickle down economics and i want to sort of compare that to what the fed is doing and how they're propping up big companies so yeah. there's that but i don't want to forget about this idea the yang gang uh the universal basic income because i think there's two yeah. there's two things that you know we could do is i think there's going to be a piece of when you know the civil unrest or you know when covid sort of calms down that companies will that the government has to sort of invest somewhat in you know people who do work with their hands whether that's like you know just making things factory workers 
but like we also- some sort of some sort of retraining, right? Right. Like, I, you know, I think everyone like sort of points at Germany and says, you know, Germany does such a great job in terms of retraining its workforce. You know, they they have ne- they've seen a, uh, they haven't seen the significant loss of factory workers that we have. Uh, to be fair, but like yeah. they have great retraining programs where if you lose your job, you know, you can go to community college and get whatever retraining completely for free. But you right. have to remember that Germany also spends 50 times what we do on retraining. So it costs. Yeah, I mean, it sounds yeah. great, but it costs. You have to be willing to pay for it. Right, right. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Budgets are moral documents. Um, yep. So, okay. So I, I do want to just, because tell us, uh, I guess I just want to compare and contrast those two things. The Because we were talking about how the Fed is sort of propping up big companies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Versus like, I guess, trickle down economics. Is, is yeah. that not just, is the Fed not like pouring money into these buying bonds and stocks? Isn't that just trickle down economics? Like who is that money actually going to in the end? Yeah, I mean, it's going to these big businesses. I, I think the part of the concern is the, the landscape of the American economy has become these sorts of giant multinational sort of conglomerates. Even if you look at places like Silicon Valley, where you have a lot of new companies popping up, most new companies that are popping up in Silicon Valley, their business model, this is like their model is like the, how we're going to make money is to be bought by Google, is to be bought by Amazon. It's, that's their goal. Exactly. Uh, because that's the world we sort of live in. And uh, this, uh, I mean, is, the last financial crisis sort of defined this idea of too big to fail. Right. Where you have a handful of companies that are so big and are so integral to the economy right. that if you allow them to crash, if you allow them to fail, the whole system would just completely completely unravel and i think that's what the fed is trying to prevent doing see, see that that just makes me sad because like, i was one of the things i think about is that guy who made the oculus uh the, the virtual yeah. the, the vr headset yeah, yeah. I, I don't know do you know how much that thing sold for no dude it sold for two billion dollars <laughs> yeah. like who like, bought it uh who did buy it it might have been I'm gonna have to get back to Google or yeah, it was either Google or Amazon. I don't. One of them bought it, and like I feel like things used to go for like a couple million, like two, two, like once you get to the bit, like that's a thousand millions. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's 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 sort of crazy the concentrate, and you know, there, you know, for all capitalist western sort of industrial every country that has gone through an industrial revolution has had to deal with this fact of income inequality uh yes it's worse in some places like the u.s compared to others uh, but like this is not just a u.s phenomenon this is a sort of all across the world phenomenon and here i mean it's sort of concentrated a little more because uh, the 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 folks who have a lot have a lot right here yeah um, and, yeah. and and fundamentally i think that's that that sort of uh the concentration of of wealth in one area and uh you know large income inequalities is fundamentally not good for capitalism and it's fundamentally it's antithetical to the american dream you know like our parents both came here um with this idea that you know if you work hard and are persistent with a little bit of luck 
you can you can make something of yourself in this well, country. You could, you could maybe make a company that Google would buy. <laughs> that's right. We'll buy. And that's that's <laughs> not become the thing. It's like uh, that's and, and it's sort of. And, and, and you I can think, add to the, the monopolistic. Right, right, and, 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 and it, I think it hurts overall competitiveness, you know. Or everyone creativity. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, everyone benefits when there's a sort of level-ish playing field, and people are all playing, and ideas are not squashed off or bought off by sort of big conglomerates. Right, right. Um, wow. Okay, so uh, talking about you know not big conglomerates, I want to give a shout out to uh, Burger MD. Okay. Um, this, you need to check out the Instagram, uh, the burgers that are on there literally are so scrumptious. Now, the interesting thing is that, uh, he hasn't had a lot of posts recently because COVID at home, not eating burgers, but I want to encourage, I want to encourage Patrick Zaka, Burger MD to, um, make some homemade burgers. Okay. How about you show it? Patrick, but make some, put, make some food, man. Patrick, I would also like to give a shout out to to Patrick. Patrick is currently single. So, you know, if, uh, you know, exactly. If you're able to, if you're able to make some delicious meals, you know, that, that, that sends a message to, uh, to any potential (laughs) mate out there, you know, (laughs) that's a, that's a selling point, man. Put that on your resume. Right. Put that on your resume. I will be your reference. I will do it. Um, Okay, so I want to jump to, I guess, the the economy of the unrest. Um, So there has been, I I mean, it's 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 interesting to me that it it's happening now. Of course, you know, there's the domino of like COVID hit. People are at home. I think we're all interacting with news differently. You know, when I even when the the riots broke out here in Atlanta after George Floyd's killing. like the first place I found out about this stuff was Twitter. Twitter, yeah. You know that that was, and then and from then on, it was like, you know, they were getting all the stories. To qu- it's just the, the quickest news aggregator that's there. It, it kind there. of reminds you of Arab Spring. Remember that that right. happened, you know, five years like right. uh, Muammar Gaddafi. Yeah, yep, yep. and like all that stuff in like uh, in Egypt, and, and, yeah. uh, it, and it's sort of funny. Like, there's I don't know if this is the story's apocryphal, but I, I like telling it anyways because it's really <laughs> funny. But uh, in, in, in the first Persian Gulf War in 1990, when uh, Saddam Hussein um, invaded Kuwait essentially for for oil, right. uh, neighboring Saudi Arabia was getting really really nervous, right? Because uh, they see crazy Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait, Saudi Arabia next door. If he went in for the oil, the big money load is in Saudi Arabia. So the government of Saudi Arabia, you know, who's the government of Saudi Arabia is just like, oh shit, you know, like, is this guy going to invade us? What do we tell the people? So they're like the, the, the then ruler of Saudi Arabia is like, you know, it's like, I need to think about it. Give me a week. So they decided just not to tell anyone for a week and a week later they t- and like could you imagine the whole country had no idea that their next door neighbor was invaded by a foreign country like in the twitter age like all it takes is you know the someone on twitter being like you know twitter asks what are you doing right now it's being invaded by Saddam <laughs> you know that's, like, hold on. the, the state up, hold secret up. is out you know so i i think in, in some senses twitter is such a cool um social organizing force but anyways right. yes yeah, right right it, it totally changes the dynamic or like 
the the way in which we communicate and it's like it's like it's like going from like walking to like 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 rail or something yeah. you know totally. trains. it's like yeah. just totally change things um so i guess i'm curious so like i, I see I, I think i've seen a lot of these companies so one i think that some people would ask are the unrest uh productive um and, and i would argue that it's been surprising to see the the sudden generosity of a lot of these companies like we see like what uh bank of america pledged a billion dollars to help organizations that are fighting systemic racism right michael jordan you know there's like the quote you know i'm <laughs> i'm not a business Goat. man but right. i'm a business Man, like, man. <laughs> like, like, like Michael Jordan is goat. a goat. Um, and I would, uh, I see you said goat twice. Um, I don't want to stay on this point long, but, uh -oh. but just because he had some documentary, which was. Uh, have, you, have you seen the documentary? Yeah, yeah I've seen the documentary. Okay. It's, it's the greatest sports documentary. It, it's sort of sports porn. <laughs> <laughs> it's did I not I was like wow he said this twice right now and the yeah. Kobe fans the <laughs> fans are like my skin is crawling oh no no I'm a little it's not this is dangerous territory let's not get into territory. this we'll but, get derailed <laughs> but I will say though that like the man that that um Chicago Bulls like intro music I mean, if, if, if that doesn't get you hyped, like, I don't, I really don't know what will, because it's just, right. this is phenomenal. So basically what I want to say is that, I guess the question I have for you is, will, are, are, will these unrest have like a significant economic impact or are they having an economic impact at all? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't know about from the economic standpoint, but for, for the social standpoint, I, I would, um. I, I, I'm hopeful, yeah. Um, but I, I think what sort of separates um, the, the sort of movement triggered by George Floyd and the police brutality, and you know, it, it's sort of the central sin of American democracy. You know, is the the systemic poor treatment of Black people in this country. You know, since its inception, really. Yeah. Uh, oh. Really, uh, one of the linchpins and the turning points was uh, Dr. King and that, the movement that he led and the way he he did it in such um, uh, such finesse. I think a distinction that I would make is when uh, Dr. King was making, you know, heading that movement, it was he was making he was making a national ask, right? He was asking the nation for the Civil Rights Act. He was asking the nation for fair housing. Um, but when we think about sort of reform, police reform, when we just tackle that issue, yeah. there are 18,000 police departments across this country. Yeah. That's right, 18,000. That's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> and, and all of them are sort of governed by local police chiefs, local judges, 
local superintendents. Mm -hmm. There is no sort of, even though the police in many ways, you know, aside from the black-white issue, is is uh, looks more like a military than it does like a police force. In the right gear. Yeah, that's right. But there, are, the the sort of issue here is that the the demonstrations that have been going on have a sort of unified theme but the solution is a local problem so unless you have 18,000 separate organized local people who are consistently fighting for this issue change will be very very difficult um mm. Mm. yeah yeah okay okay well i guess um you did hear about what in Minneapolis that they've it's not going to be immediate they said yeah. I think over the course of a year they decided to disband uh, their basically their whole police department they're just right. like well I mean I think it's interesting because I think you know Minneapolis uh, is a really interesting case study I guess because it seems like they had been having trouble in their police department for years they're like, years. like you know yeah. I mean like uh, rape kids went unused or yeah. like they uninvestigated or like how you hard know, it's, it's a it's a it's a systemic up. issue you know and it, i mean i think reforming and like getting rid of the bad eggs is one thing but recruiting a different type of police officer right. you know like a, a different type of uh, like an ethos of a different type of police officer i think that that's part of the issue and you know getting to your point of minneapolis you know working to sort of decrease some of the funding there i'd seen that the nypd the the operating budget of nypd just new york police department <laughs> is somewhere i think it's like four or five billion dollars a year which is more than the center of disease control which does diseases all over the u.s you know it's like is there really do, do, do we really need tanks and do we really need all of this so i, I think and, and there's a sort of historical perspective to it right because it's a sort of it's in the past it was a sexy thing to support right it's like oh you know cr people who are tough on crime yeah exactly. let's get the you know like it makes sense but yeah, but it's again, it come back, it's one of these zombie ideas where it's clear it doesn't work. Right. Hiring more police officers does not wake the uh, town or place safer. Right. You know? Yeah. But it's a, it's, a, it's a sexy zombie idea that people like supporting. They're like, yeah, let's do this, you know? This, right. <laughs> this is the answer, yeah. Um, yeah. So I actually, it's interesting. Um, I've been. I some, I'm starting to feel old, okay? When we start talking about, I've heard a lot of people talk about MLK, and yeah. like, I almost feel like there is this, there's the, I guess, I don't know, maybe the old way of thinking about how to bring about change. There are young people out there who like, I wouldn't say scorn the tradition of MLK, but are just, look, we're not about this non-violent protest anymore. Like, yeah. or Malcolm X style. Like, like violence has been doing to us. So, like, we yeah. are going to exert that violence back on the system. Um, right. The, the, and people have. I mean, I, I, I'm not one to necessarily just outright condemn or condone anything. I think you know, right. you could examine what's happening. Interesting thing that happened is like, I don't know if you know about this Instagram blackout that occurred. Yeah. 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 We're like, for like almost a day and a half, right? Like there was nothing, I mean, essentially there was nothing really bought or sold. Or if you were buying and selling things, everyone saw it. They were like, yeah. huh, 
we see you and then the people who were buying and selling from them took them to task hey you need to do better why are you how are you so far behind on this this is this is basic um so it just kind of begs the question that you know I don't. I don't know if we sometimes acknowledge the sort of. I mean, there is a, a, a an amount of violence that has to occur in order to extract wealth from everyday workers and whatnot. It's not unreasonable, like that the, those same people would want to like react in a violent way to buck against that same system. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I think it makes it, 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 there's a lot of theories sort of about how you how you sort of bring about change. Certainly, capturing the global narrative, especially in the age of Twitter and social media, is you know, demonstrations and those sorts of things that captures the attention of the media and captures the imagination of the people. Is the sort of first step in terms of disseminating and recognizing that hey. This is a problem. We need to fix this. That's step one, right? And step two is organizing. And step three is okay, coming up with a solution and lobbying and you know voting and getting uh, involved in civic government, and doing what President Obama did when he was in Chicago as a community organizer. You know, yeah. doing those sorts of things. It is interesting though, because it's like so. I just went to the. I mean, literally, uh, what is it? So we're recording today is uh, June eleventh. Thursday, so um, I just voted two days ago. That's two right, days, yeah. Right? Two days. Yeah. Uh, what? So I got to the polls at uh, about six o'clock. Um, we yeah. didn't leave until eight thirty. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's one thing. You know, it's really clear, <laughs> like how it, it, this country makes it so difficult right. to vote. You know, there. First of all, it's not a holiday. <laughs> Second of all, there, there, there. It's so archaic, right? There are places uh, in Europe and even like some uh, places in in Asia, uh, democracies where you're able to e-vote. Right. Why there are places like in Austria. Here, like what the heck? In, in in Austria, it is mandatory that you vote. It's tied to your driver's Whoa. license. If you don't vote, you lose your driver's license, right? And like there are pl- even like places like India, right? Like uh, the, uh, one billion people, and the overall that va- like it's like I think over ninety five percent of people cast a ballot in their election. Right. It, it's it's completely wild, and it, it, you know there are. There are voting places tacked up to the side of the Himalayan right. mountains. Yeah, yeah. Like people go there. Yeah. And vote. It's Radio Lab did an amazing episode about how, like, right. yeah, they like literally go into like deepest, like the, yeah. the deepest mountains to find people and like have and, a know, polling I, station. There. Right. And I think it, the also the other uglier truth is this whole idea of you know gerrymandering and right. um, you know the the right more than the left uh, sort of trying to uh, voter suppression really you know like the amount of if you see the amount of voting places that have been closed in predominantly black neighborhoods or predominantly college towns it's it's um, it's sort of unreal it is funny though because like i feel like so many times that we talk about um how young people don't vote and uh, they don't come out to the polls it's okay let's just take a step back 
if I change if I change my address like every years, yeah. right? Like it becomes difficult yeah. for me. Like if I'm at school yep. for part of the time and like yep. the voting like and I and I decide not to go back home during that time, like it, it becomes difficult for me if I'm like busy with classes. Like it's much easier if you're you know, sorry, but old, elderly, you stay in the same place. Yeah. You know, you know your voting poll. You know, sh- you've got two hours to kill. Right, exactly. You got two hours to kill. You're not working, whatever. Like, there, there are natural yeah. sort of roadblocks that get put up with young people, and yeah. there just aren't there for people who are a little bit older. And I, I think I, I saw this story, I think it was a couple of years ago in Florida. This is really interesting. So, Florida has this law or used to have this law where if you ever went to prison and you were released, you did your time, you were still unable to vote, Hmm. which is constitutionally illegal, right? And it's it's sort of antithetical to Anglican law, right? Is like if you served your time, you should have all your rights put given back to you. And, you know, there was some sort of like way they they justified it. So in Florida, they did a referendum and by like a 60% majority, they passed it. Like, yes, these people should be these former felons who paid their time should be able to vote. But what the establishment did essentially to subvert that is they passed a law saying that, you know, along the line, these people who, you know, uh, went to jail, paid their time, they've accrued um, small little fines, like a parking fine or like, you know, you missed a jury, like a a jury date or, you know, one one thing or another. Basically, it asks you before you sign up to vote if you have had any of those fines and you have not paid them you go straight back to jail for five years or if you choose to relinquish your right to vote then you don't have to pay those fines (laughs) wow so think about it like if you just got out of the the slammer you know, and you're like, I don't know, maybe there is like some sort of small fine along the way that I've accrued. Yeah, fuck it, man. I'm not going to yeah. vote. You know, and, and the the order of magnitude is over. It's over a million people are in this sort of position. And if you I think mean, about it in the past, in Florida. <laughs> Right. Think about like what was the margin that you know Gore between Gore and Bush and during that election. You know, if 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 you get a million people who would probably vote left, Florida instead of being a swing state just becomes just became yeah, a Democratic state. You know, um, yeah, the America looks a lot different. It looks a lot different. So I think, um, yeah, it's 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 sort of interesting when you look yeah, at it. Yeah. So actually, so there are, you know, this is a medicine podcast, okay? You're both sure. doctors here. I'm, I'm curious about how COVID is changing the health sector. Um, so it's been yeah. super interesting. Just a couple observations, right? So because COVID hit, there are definitely people who are like, afraid of coming into the hospital whether you know older program directors apd (laughs) i can't risk my life but even more than that there are people you know the dermatologist who doesn't really need no offense doesn't always need to come in and look at images so then you wonder like well how many how many dermatologists do we really need to manage this hospital 
It begs the question, right. doesn't it? I think it, it, the the face of of medical care is really going to change um, after this. You know, even after we're done with COVID. So, uh, call I think a month ago about a month ago medicare um, just approved full billing for virtual visits which means that virtual visits bill essentially the same as an in-person visit if you can do video chat and if you do a phone visit it's like a little bit less yeah so and in the past it was nothing right so think about like as doctors like all the patient phone calls that you get you know the 4 a.m call about hey you know i was uh, having trouble sleeping you know and you you, you're probably they called their primary care doctor just because they wanted to chat they can build that as a virtual visit, right, you're just like, right? hey, make sure you so, get the video I mean, up, all right? <laughs> make sure you get the video up. Uh, but and then the, the issue is that, yeah, you're right. Like we don't really. There's a lot that we're able to sort of medicine in some ways has sort of been behind, right? I mean, I'm I'm all. I think there's a lot of places where the virtual visits work, and a lot of them where they right. don't. And we'll have to sort out where they do. But I think there's a lot of people who, especially in certain fields like dermatology, you know. You don't really, I mean, like other than you doing like a total body body skin exam, which would sort of be difficult on a virtual visit, if it's just like you have a rash on your wrist and you have to show them yeah, your wrist and that, that's that. Or, or like, for example, like nephrology, you know, they, all they really need to check up on is labs and make sure the patient isn't feeling volume overload. They don't really need to right. see the I person. am going to step in for uh, my fellow nephrologist. I cannot believe what he just said. I, I absolutely think <laughs> the physical exam you do on some on their kidneys, yeah, that, that's, yeah. that's right. That's right. Well, no, even uh, keeping nephrology aside, I'm look in my field, like cardiology. Right? There's a lot of there's a lot of patients who. Um, for example, they had a mitral valve replacement five years ago. And you just sort of, you're, you're seeing them just keep an eye on their valve. You get an echo, as long as they're not feeling f- terrible, that's it. You know, it's just like sort of a yearly visit that I'm just following their valve. As long as their echo is okay, do I necessarily need to see them every year? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. You know, a lot of this stuff, there's no, a lot of the stuff we do, you know, I remember when we were interns in clinic, the attending would ask us, you know, when do you want to see them back? <laughs> I don't know. What you mean? Like, is there evidence behind that? There's no. You're just you pick a random number, man. It's like, yeah, six months, three right. months, uh, two months. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you know, gonna be like, just, okay, when do you want to see them on video chat back? <laughs> and then right, when do you feel right, like right. they're gonna need to come actually in person back? <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, and we've both been doing virtual visits, right? So we know like the the sort of limitations. There's a lot of things where like, for a lot of things, most times when I'm doing virtual visits, I'm just making sure the person's feeling okay, and then I'll refill their meds, and that's about it. But if they have any other like sort of complaint, like they have a rash or that, I'm like, and we can't do, you know, where we practice, most of our patients don't have video chat capability. I I can't do very much, you know. They're like, oh, my leg's swollen and it hurts. I, I don't, you know, if you don't have a video chat and you just have a phone, I can't, I don't know what to do with that. That could be a lot of things you need to be yeah. seen. So, I, you know, I don't think the visits are going to, but I think there's there's going to be some sort of blend between the two. And then to go back to your, like, other question about, like, what's, how is COVID sort of reshaped healthcare and people coming in and uh, being scared to come in, you know, from the acute care standpoint, you know, we've seen a giant reduction in strokes, MIs, um, uh, you know, a lot of medical emergencies that people 
aren't coming in for, which sort of begs the question. I mean, this is what they talk about, the third wave of COVID, right? The first wave was the, the, the disease. The second wave is when, you know, we get complacent, the disease comes back. And then the third wave is all these people who sat on their medical problems for a while. And now they're coming in with end stage diagnoses when we could previously have intervened on them. So I don't know. We're still seeing this in the hospital. We're not seeing that many like cats, like not that many end stemmies, not that many stemmies as we usually yeah. would. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know what to make of it. But certainly from the surgical standpoint, um, and from the financial standpoint, which which are sort of intertwined, it's uh, it's sort of obvious now that the how low of a margin hospitals were working on and just a couple weeks of freeze freezing elective surgeries um po- so many hospitals are like you know reducing furloughing staff doing pay cuts um and some hosp- smaller hospitals are even being forced to shut shut their doors down yeah. you know and for those people who are, who are listening and don't know what STEMI and STEMI are so basically just different flavors of heart attacks I know you'd be surprised. It, like these, all these things are, can be very uh, nuanced. Um, it's really, it's really okay. interesting that um, you know, it, with every step of this thing, like you know, like you think about the patients who have video versus don't have video capability, and like yeah. how our structures of economy are already sort of creating different avenues for these people. Like, well, if you, if you just had a phone that had a video, I'd be able to bill a little bit higher so let me just make sure i get get to all those patients first and then if you can make it into the office yeah great you know it it is there's always no matter what you know the system always will find ways to create different avenues based upon like socioeconomic status and i think you know we have the privilege of working of, of knowing about these things and trying our best to like always level the playing field or just acknowledge the fact that like you know there are inherent inequalities differences in the system that you have to constantly try to work against yeah and 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 to be fair you know i I, i'm sort of old school i still think you know there there's value in the face-to-face like especially like with doctor patient sort of relationship how are you supposed to make a relationship with someone just over the phone or over video chat you know like maybe it applies for someone you've been seeing for 10 15 years who's like stable but if it's a new brand new patient that you're seeing or it, it, especially like things like mental health and that sort of stuff i know they've been doing it over phone call but it's it's very difficult to have a, a human sort of interaction with someone that's not a canned sort of interaction over over the phone you know, those things can only really happen in yeah, person. Yeah. Um, so we have talked about a lot here. Um, I, I'm trying to figure out how we should close it. So I, I had a couple, you know, I wanted to say final thoughts. When will this be over? Um, I don't know if I want that question. Maybe I'll let the audience sort of, <laughs> sort of turn that question over their, you know, their, their little heads. Um, but I guess I'm, is there anything like I guess that you weren't able to say things we didn't touch on or something you want to just like leave the audience with as we as we get out of here? Yeah, I mean, I, and not to be too overly depressing, but I think it's it's important. I think it, we it's it's easy in the U.S., which is probably where most of us are listening in. It is. Um, you know, it's easy to sort of get caught up on the issues that that we have and worry about um, 
sort of our response to coronavirus and what the economy is going to do and how the healthcare system is going to be. But, uh, you know, I think overall we're probably going to be fine because we're a rich first world country um, by global standards. But you know, when we think about the sort of giant casualties that there'll be it'll be in these sort of poor countries that you know regardless of whether you agree we did the right thing with shoring up the economy and the fed doing what they needed to do and the tax benefits and whether they were executed in a facile manner or not is one thing but uh, these other countries were not really able to do any of that sort of stuff and i think there's going to be a, a sort of tremendous global pain if someone in the global world doesn't step up and take some leadership and you know try to act in a sort of coordinated global manner i know in the past that tended to be the u.s but this current president has sort of abdicated um our role as sort of the the global arbitrator of uh, of, of things during a disaster which has sort of left a large vacuum of power um uh, just uh, sort of ideas that you know in india where my parents are from uh, President Modi uh, uh, sort of in, a, in an attempt to quell the virus gave people four hours um, before he announced uh, a month-long lockdown of the entire economy and anyone who was found outside was beaten with what's there's like videos of it like beaten with sticks and it's sort of ludicrous it sounds like it and modi is you know in, in a lot of ways sort of like an impulsive character um in some ways similar to trump but uh when you think about the impossible decision that he was forced to make it, india has for every one person for for every 100,000 people there is one hospital bed in india so if they had any sort of magnitude of breakout, their healthcare system would have would have completely and utterly collapsed. But the side effect of that was that there's a giant portion of India's population that are migrant workers. These are people who um, travel hundreds of miles from rural areas to urban areas to cook, clean, um, do sort of labor tasks, and then at the end of the day, they go back on trains or on buses and that sort of stuff. And with Modi sort of shutting down the entire Indian economy, there were people who were stranded hundreds of miles away from their homes. And in many cases, were trying to walk back home hundreds of miles and were beaten on the way because they were outside. They were violating curfew. So, you, you know, the in in some ways there you know our problems in some ways seem a little smaller but when we think about it it's sort of a really truly global um issue that it's not just us that that are going through it every it's, it's striking if you talk to people in different countries everyone's sort of dealing with uh, the same same sort of issues and hopefully we're able to come out of this with a uh, it's i think it's clear that a solution to this is a global solution it's not a, a sort of single local solution right. hopefully that brings people closer together in that sense wow. look at that ending with a, a global note uh yeah, there you go. <laughs> Thank you, guys. This has been a, uh, another episode of The Silent Doc. Uh, if you have further questions, hit me at uh, Instagram at The Silent Doc or on Facebook. Uh, and I can always link you up with Beer Juice so you can get some some brilliant, some brilliant tidbits. Uh,
No, no, this was fun, man. Thanks, thanks for having me. This Dude, was awesome. Thank you for being an excellent guest. I appreciate it. Signing off.